In April 1991, Christopher Case was director of programming for Muzak, the company responsible for introducing elevator music and department store jingles. Growing up, he'd always had a passion for music. He grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and was known by all his friends and family for his love of music, as well as fitness fanatic. He'd been a DJ back then, and had often preferred listening to music rather than socialising by going out at night. The worst anyone could say about him was that he was sometimes a bit of a loner. A good friend from his DJ days in Richmond, Sammy Sado, said, One of the reasons I get emotional about it is because he was my friend and I loved him, and I didn't like the way he died. He would travel around the world with his job, so he didn't date much, but women liked him. He was the kind of guy you could rely on. Everybody's friend, she said. Fast forward to the night he died. On the night Christopher Case died, he'd almost resigned himself to his fate. He had accepted that his death would most likely come. He felt that he simply would not be able to stop it. And although he put up a fight, his fears were confirmed. He did not make it through the night. He was found dead, clothed in a kneeling position, surrounded by crosses and crucifixes and salt. The candles he had lit had burned down. He had no wounds. Soft religious music was still playing in the background. He had prepared himself for the battle, but he had lost. One of the reporters who covered the story was Lewis Corse for the Seattle Times. What intrigued me was the fact that from everything I knew from what I'd been told about it, he was pretty level-headed, he said. Nobody who knew him can understand the week in the summer of 1991. It all began when he'd gone on a business trip to San Francisco. A male business friend had introduced him to a woman who was importing rare music from Egypt. She had some information on ancient Egyptian music and, of course, music was Christopher's life. So he was very interested in that. But Christopher would later say there was something very strange about the dark-haired woman. She had a special intensity about her, he said. It was obvious to Christopher that she wanted to start a relationship with him. She was older than he was, and she was, in his opinion, quickly enamoured of him and he didn't like that at all. He had no interest whatsoever other than the ancient Egyptian music that she knew so much about. The second time they met, to continue discussing the music, was in a restaurant. She came on even stronger to chase that night, he later told his close friends, and he said he pulled away from her, telling her it was time they left. 
This greatly angered her, and she uttered something strange to him. She said that she was a witch, and that he would be very sorry. She told him she was going to put a curse on him. Christopher returned home from his business trip to San Francisco, and for a time he dismissed the incident from his mind, the way most rational people would. He mentioned it to his friend Sammy, but he didn't sound alarmed when he first told her. He said, this lady I met, she said she's a witch. And Sammy said to him, just bless her and go on about your business. This was the first of three calls he made to her. And the calls would become increasingly worse. Until the night of Wednesday the 17th of April, 1990, when he would find himself in a mortal battle for his life. It had been less than a week since his meeting with this mystery woman, who described herself as a witch by his own account, in messages he was leaving on Sammy's answer phone. He had not heard from the woman again after leaving San Francisco, yet, said Sammy, it seemed that his encounters with her were beginning to play on his mind, and it was horrible. She said, I wish someone could hear what I heard in his voice, and what he said. It was a living hell. It's my understanding that he would try to sleep, but he had gotten to the point where he was not sleeping. On the Tuesday, Christopher visited a spiritual bookstore called Evangeline Inc., not far from his apartment. The store manager, Rodney Higuchi, took particular notice of Christopher as he entered the store. Christopher asked him where the crosses were. The store manager says, Then I saw him collect quite a few in his hands. So I asked him what he was going to be using them for, and he mentioned at the time that he was battling some supernatural forces, and he wanted them for protection. He wanted to know if they'd been blessed with holy water. Christopher told the store manager, I can't sleep. I just don't know what to do now. He returned from the store and scattered the crosses and crucifixes throughout his apartment, and he spread salt in the corners of every room. Later that day, he phoned his friend Sammy again. He said, it's like they're putting thoughts in my head before I can even think them. They've attacked me in the middle of the night. He told her he'd woken up to find small cuts on his fingers. He was terrified. He hadn't shown up for work in two days. He sat and wrote notes on methods of combating evil. He told his worried friends that he believed the curse was taking hold of him. That night, he became so terrified that he felt he could not remain in his apartment. He left and checked into a hotel nearby. When he returned to his apartment the next day, 
He wrote more notes out on rituals that he could do to fight the powers of darkness that were so violently besieging him. He lined the base of each wall with more salt. And he fashioned a geometric pattern in salt at the front door. He spread copious amounts of salt in large piles in every corner of the room. He returned to the spiritual bookstore once more. This time, the bookstore owner felt that he was seeing a changed man. Mr. Higuchi said, When he first came in, he wasn't very agitated, and nothing looked out of the ordinary. When he came in the second time, he looked exhausted and worn out. And then I realised that it was affecting him more than just mentally. I mean, it was a physical thing he was going through. When I talked with him on that Wednesday morning, my feeling was he was ready to die. Because he said to me, he said, you know, I can die from this. Shortly after 8pm that night, Sammy Salda tried the Seattle police. She told them that she had grave concerns that Chris had not answered her calls all day. Homicide detective... Larry Peterson King Kelly said police initially received information to warrant a welfare check at Chase's apartment prior to the night of his death. They found his apartment door locked and had no response when they knocked on his door. They noticed a line of salt outside the front door but they felt they had no reason to break down his door as they did not think the welfare call was an emergency. Neighbours would later tell the homicide detective that Christopher Case was a very private man. After Christopher's second trip to the bookstore, he also visited a priest, apparently in a desperate state. Father James Malahan later told the TV show The Extraordinary that he'd been disturbed by the man's condition and that his terror was greatly affecting the physical condition as well as his mind. The priest said Christopher asked him for advice on how to combat supernatural forces. He was in great fear that he was going to be killed. That evening, his friend Sammy returned home to find an answer phone message on her phone from Christopher. It was the last time she heard his voice. Oh well, they just about got me, he said in the message. The most chilling aspect of it, she said, was the total acceptance of his fate. His total resignation to his impending death. The next day, all her calls to him went unanswered. At 3.38 that afternoon, the police entered his apartment. It was a mess. There were scribbled notes everywhere. The floor was littered with his writing and covered with piles of salt. The homicide detective says, I heard religious music playing on the radio from the living room. A flicker of light came through the bathroom doorway. As the officers entered, they came across the final frozen moment of Christopher Case's life. 
The candles had burned down. He was kneeling in prayer. He said, I saw the victim slumped over on his knees, with his head resting on the edge of the tub, left of the faucet. He was in the bathtub, fully clothed. A trickle of cold water ran from the tap. He was still wearing his glasses. He had died sometime during that night. The Seattle coroner officially ruled the cause of death as cardiac arrest. But those who knew him, especially during the last week of his life, knew there was a lot more to his demise. Medical examiner with the King County Medical Examiner's Office, Rich Garner, said that the cause of death was acute myocarditis. Myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart muscle. His friend Sammy said, I firmly believe he died of fright. He was scared to death, literally. The Seattle Times wrote, Mystery death of North Kingston man whose body was found surrounded by occult symbols. The newspaper described the death scene as taking place in the bathtub. There was no evidence of foul play, but the presence of crucifixes and piles of salt throughout the apartment have baffled investigators. Kings County Police Major Jackson said the salt and other objects at the scene have some significance in self-protection against demons or evil spirits. King County Police Major Jackson Beard said on the discovery of his body, at this point, this is a suspicious death, something that needs to be explained. But he added, I don't believe there was any foul play. This could be suicide or natural death, or there was something else going on here. He said he was waiting on toxicology results. They later came back clean. He didn't smoke, hardly drank and did not take drugs. Sammy Salder, his friend, also believed that her friend may have died from fright. Salder said she had known Christopher for ten years and that he had always been stable until a week earlier. He told her, people are trying to do things to me. He was frantic, she said. On April the 14th, the first of three phone calls, Christopher called her claiming to hearing whispering voices that he could not find the source of. He said he felt as though he was being watched and would see moving shadows within the apartment that night. In a series of ever-increasing desperate phone calls, he told her, they've attacked me in the middle of the night. He told her he woke up with small cuts on his fingers. He said they're like putting thoughts in my head before I can even think them. Did Christopher Case simply die from a very rare inflammation of the heart? Or did the whispering voices and the shadowy figures he saw in his apartment result in his death? Had the witch sent evil spirits to destroy him as she had promised? He'd never been under a doctor for a heart problem. He was a fitness enthusiast and had never noticed a problem with his heart. 
He looked after himself well. He didn't smoke. He barely drank. He didn't take drugs. He'd never had time off for illness. He'd never had a mental illness. All until the last week of his life, when the terror of what was being unleashed upon him became too much for his mind. Surely, if Christopher had a potentially underlying heart condition, is it not an incredible coincidence that it happened to rear its head just in the week that he was in mortal fear for his life? That final night, he set up his defence lines about midnight. He had the meticulous care of a man who believed every placement of his candles and salt and crosses and religious writing could all be the difference between victory and defeat of the dark forces. Christopher Case had come to believe he might somehow survive the night only by encircling himself with religious items that would fight off these evil spirits. After carefully positioning eight large candles around the perimeter of his bathtub, he placed crucifixes and crosses between each candle while soft religious music filled the rooms of his apartment. He lit the candles, then climbed in his empty bathtub fully clothed to wait out the night. I'm in trouble, Sammy. I'm in deep, deep trouble, he had said in his last phone call. What really happened to Christopher Case on the last night of his life? Was he in a battle for his very soul? Did a witch's spell really kill him? Is it entirely possible that an ancient Egyptian curse or spell really was unleashed by this mysterious woman who claimed to be a witch? Will we look at another case now where there's the possibility of death caused by supernatural means. On November 27, 1992, the Spanish police visited a house in the early hours of the morning at number 8 Louis Maron Street in Madrid, Spain, having been summoned by the family's father. And it will begin the tale of a saga which defied both scientific and rational explanations and it remains one of the most perplexing cases in the annals of parapsychology. The Madrid police will soon find themselves, by their own testimonies, terrified. And a death that is unexpected and unexplainable. The cursed saga, it seems, all began as a naive game, one which thousands, if not millions, have played before. It began as a result of playing the Ouija board. The daughter, Estefania, age 18, had played the Ouija with her friends and it would not be long before she was dead. The friends had all done this as they wanted to make contact with the boyfriend of one of them who'd sadly died in a motorcycle accident. After playing it, Estefania began to see shadows hear voices, and things would move on their own, particularly the crucifixes in the family home. By the time her father called the police, she'd already mysteriously died. Chief Inspector Jose Pedro Negri and five other police officers found her father standing outside in the street, despite the cold of the November night. 
When the police asked to enter the house, the father reluctantly led them inside. As he talked to them, a closet door in the room burst open suddenly and violently. Totally unnaturally, the police report later said. From somewhere outside the house came a loud noise and it sounded as though it was coming from the terrace. When they cautiously approached the terrace and looked out, no one was there. Moments later they noticed that on the small table that housed the telephone, a brownish-coloured fluid had appeared, which looked to be consistent with drool. There was no obvious source from which this could have come, wrote the police. As they walked around the house, they saw that a crucifix on the wall now had been separated from Christ, as though hands had pulled it apart. Beside the crucifix, there were deep scratches on the wall. Four of the policemen left, preferring to wait outside in the cold rather than stay a moment longer in the house. Inspector Jose Negri and one other officer remained. They saw that by the scratches on the wall, the Christ had been ripped away from the crucifix. The father told them that on one occasion, one of his sons was thrown across the room in front of him by something he could not see. When the police inspector entered the bathroom, an ice-cold chill flooded through his body. The family told him they often heard disembodied voices coming from the bathroom when no one was inside. The inspector said that what he witnessed that night seemed to be of diabolical origin. He said that the father said sometimes when he and his little boy were sitting on the bed, his son was picked up and thrown in a flying move. The policeman said I sat down on the bed to see if anything would happen. We heard a terrible scream behind us which came from the small balcony. I quickly opened the door and ran out to see if I could see anything but there was nothing there. The noise was dreadful. The mother and father told the inspector about the strange death of their daughter, a death they believed had now brought terrible wrath upon the house. They'd found her in bed, convulsing violently and screaming in agony and terror. Her parents had rushed her to hospital, but she never recovered from the coma and died in hospital. A few months before this, in March 1990, Estefania and her friends had played with the Ouija board at college. Accounts say that when the student's teacher discovered them playing with it, she seized the board and threw the glass they'd been using as a pointer to the ground, shattering it into hundreds of shards of glass. The glass had moments before been mysteriously full of smoke, and when it shattered on the ground, the smoke went up into Estefania's nose and mouth. This was corroborated by the teacher. Since that moment, the girl became a changed girl, it was said. On occasions, her body appeared to have almost superhuman strength. She would become increasingly enraged, furious and frightening, screaming at her brothers and sisters in a voice which no longer sounded like her own. She sounded like an evil man, or worse, a demon itself. The voice was deep, gravelly and hoarse, and nothing like her own, and it would hurl the vilest insults and threats.
Her parents became desperate to find out what was wrong with their daughter, who had changed beyond any recognition. She was now having terrible seizures, in which she would thrash violently, and then sink into a catatonic state. They referred her to the doctor who referred her to hospital specialists, who conducted numerous tests. But the tests found nothing, and the specialists could make no diagnosis to explain her behaviour. She would begin to say that there were dark figures watching her from the hallway of her room. And these figures began to call her name. She described the dark figures as a group of tall, thin, famished people who would raise their arms and shake their fists and urge her, come to us, come to us. Estefania would snarl at her brothers and growl or bark like a wild dog. She said she was plagued by strange and evil people who stalked her. At night, she said the voices were relentless. She would get no sleep. They would hear banging like huge fists pounding on the walls. They heard grotesque laughter inside the house, as well as the dark shadows that would stalk them all. They'd resorted to barricading themselves inside rooms by piling furniture high against the door in an attempt to keep out the evil that was infiltrating their home. But this was futile. Still, the door handles would sinisterly twist. Her father had lain flour across the rooms, and when he checked back, he found footprints like the size of a large man's shoes. Doors were still slamming and opening violently on their own. Electrical devices would switch themselves on or off. Decorative objects like photos and picture frames and crucifixes would seem to come alive. On one occasion, a hanging photo of Estefania appeared to have been burnt, yet the frame and the glass were still intact. The photo had been found lying on the floor, yet the frame and glass were still hanging on the wall completely untouched. One night, her father was lying in bed when he suddenly felt something pinning him down and touching his hands and feet outside the blanket. At first he thought it had to be one of his children, but it gave him the most chilling feeling at the same time. Later he would see that his children were all fast asleep in bed when it had happened. As the strange and unexplained incidents continued to happen, the father became so uncomfortable being in the house with his family that he had movement sensors installed throughout it. Estefania and her sisters were by this point sleeping all together, as if to protect themselves from the nightly intrusions. On one occasion, as they slept huddled together, they were woken by the sounds of something in the hallway. There stood a dark figure. As they stared at it, it began crawling on the floor very slowly, coming into their room. One of her sisters said, We heard a whistling sound like on other nights and then a groan near the door. 
We were so scared, we were frozen. It was then we noticed something on the floor, as the light from the street lamps lit up our room, and it was the shape of a man, crawling, dragging itself along the floor. He had a black head, but he had no eyes, no mouth, nothing. It was crawling towards us. And then we heard shouts. The parents later found them pins against the wall by their wrists. Things got so bad that the father tried to kill himself several times. Having lost their dear child, she had already mysteriously died, and with the terrible phenomenon continually disturbing them, they felt no choice but to leave the residence.